if you were alive in 1995, you were definitely aware of Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise. Now, I say Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise, but really, the guy you hear singing the chorus in the background is a singer by the name of LV. Coolio happened to take the song as his own. I make that sound a little more pejorative than it was, I'm sure. But his manager roomed with a producer named Doug Rashid, and I believe it was Rashid who was messing around and came up with the original song idea. Uh, I do give a ton of credit, I'm sure a lot of people do, to Coolio for actually recognizing what an amazing hit it would become. The story of Coolio getting this song to just land on his plate is fascinating, is well-documented in a Rolling Stone article that is linked in the show notes. It's funny, Coolio had actually gone over that day to pick up a check from his manager. And the quote from the Rolling Stone article goes like this. I was getting ready to go back to my car, and I remember this clearly. There was a Chevy Biscayne that was parked next door. I was looking at that, and I was asking the neighbor if he wanted to sell it. And then I had to go to the bathroom. So I went inside my manager's house to use the toilet before I rolled out. And that's when I heard the track. And he, he, asked, he asked apparently, whose track is that? And Rashid says something like, something I'm working on. And Coolio's like, that's mine. And uh, the rest is history. I guess Coolio had had at least one hit before that. So he was not an unknown by any means. So the collaboration was, I think, certainly welcome. It helped that Coolio and his manager and producer got rejected actually by at least one record company, if not multiple. Um, Rejected maybe too strong, but they were kind of slow played, I guess. And so I think it's in large part thanks to that slow playing by the record company that Coolio's manager ended up in parallel with the record label shopping the song to movie studios. And luck would have it, there was a movie being made at the time called Dangerous Minds starring Michelle Pfeiffer, which became a hit, uh, although many of you at this long from then are probably unaware of it. It was sort of a white teacher takes on a tough African-American classroom in a bad neighborhood. I think in LA is where it took place. And apparently the movie was struggling and they couldn't figure out what to do with it. So they had postponed release, even though Michelle Pfeiffer was big. I mean, people now are still writing songs about Michelle Pfeiffer, even though she's probably in her 60s, I'm going to say. Anyway, the tests of the movie improved dramatically once the song, merely the song Gangsta's Paradise itself, was added to the movie, which was pretty remarkable and may have saved that movie, which went on to do really well. And then the music video, which I unfortunately can't recall, I'll link in the show notes, was pretty iconic with Michelle Pfeiffer sort of facing off against Coolio in the video. 
there's some quote in the Rolling Stone article, something like, I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer ever saw that many black people in her life. I'm just trying to imagine what that scene looked like because apparently it was it was all of Coolio's crew. And so Michelle Pfeiffer came in, apparently uh, did what Michelle Pfeiffer does, which is amazing, and peaced out. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. That song Doug Rashid was working on when Coolio walked in, it was basically grand theft of Stevie Wonder's pastime paradise. Bot. You are a horrible player in a game. Specifically, CSGO or CEOPS. And you just suck so badly that you play like a bot. Otherwise, an NPC or something that isn't humanly controlled. The Urban Dictionary. So I'm not sure how much you're hanging around the gaming community now or the fifth grade playground, but the term bot is used a lot. Bots have been around as term and thing for quite a while. But people weren't using that term nearly as much as before. And it's come to mean more than just a robot, really. It's a super pejorative for someone who is failing at something or otherwise just acting in a way that's not cool. I'm not much of a gamer myself, but CSGO in that definition refers to Counter-Strike Global Offensive, in case you care to check it out. NPC means non-player character. So it's a computer-operated character in a game. And bots may not have very sophisticated actions sometimes on screens, which is why bot can be such a pejorative thing to say about somebody. If I think back to my childhood, I was never a Star Trek guy, but something that was on all the time after school in which some friends of mine regrettably got into was the show Star Trek The Next Generation, which featured this kind of pale uh, humanoid guy who was actually a robot named Data. He actually was a bot. When it comes to humanoids, though, I much prefer the Guardians of the Galaxy version. Gamora, played by Zoe Zaldana. Either way, these versions of bots don't strike us as that odd. They're kind of fanciful, interesting, but not really weird or uncanny. Men spending most their lives living in Remember the actor Judge Reinhold? Here's a quote. However, Ruthless People, 1986, where he had a support role, was a big hit. That year, he said in an interview, In my movies, I portray this everyman persona, someone everybody can empathize with. People can identify with a guy like me. That's from Wikipedia. Really, Judge? Now, I like Judge Reinhold as an actor. But remember how we talked in show number six, screenwriting, about that weird area between cool and strange? 
I've always felt that Judge Reinhold is slightly on the other side of the tipping point there between cool and strange. He's likable, and perhaps when he was younger, good-looking enough where one could warm up to him. And to be fair to his quote, maybe even relate with him, identify with him. There's always something weird about him. There's a scene in one of the Beverly Hills Cop movies with Eddie Murphy where he comes out wearing a trench coat to go (laughs) do some sort of operation. And it's the most bizarre thing because, of course, Eddie Murphy's Alex Foley character is looking very cool. It all takes place around Beverly Hills. No one's wearing a trench coat in that sort of environment. And really, a lot of his comments are designed to be just slightly off. And maybe that's the magic that is Judge Reinhold and how he had a career in the first place. Although it sounds like he hit some really rough patches at uh, a certain point in his career and it never fully recovered after that. He even got arrested in an airport for some sort of rant. Again, to be clear, I don't have anything against Judge Reinhold, but I think he's one example of something, some person that's just a little uncanny. And part of me thinks these are just the characters that were written for him, but when someone plays a certain character over and over and over again, you realize they're just playing themselves. Like Denzel Washington plays Denzel Washington in every single movie. Same with Jim Carrey. So I've got to believe that Judge Reinhold's characters are a reflection of who he really is as well. Masahiro Mori was a Japanese roboticist who gained prominence in the 1970s. He introduced the concept of the uncanny valley. The idea is that as characters or robots become more human, actual humans warmth towards them craters until the images or characters or robots become so realistic that all of a sudden humans warm very well to them again. The spectrum goes from characters that are very stylized, so think characters in early arcade games, Nintendo games, Mario, things like that. And then going all the way to photorealistic, prosthetic hands, things like that. Prosthetic hands still being not quite out of the uncanny valley, but getting towards that point at which uh, someone can really warm to them. If you think about it, though, if you've ever seen a prosthetic up close on someone and you didn't realize it at first, but there's this moment where all of a sudden you realize it. And of course, you don't have any malice towards such a person. You don't judge them. Apparently, you don't want to pity them either. either. So you're stuck in the middle there. (laughs) I'm not sure what you're supposed to feel, but um, besides just treating them normal. But there's this moment where it's a mixture of confusion and surprise and 
awkwardness and perhaps even there's an element of fear in there. Mori, by the way, was also the founder of Robocon, the first Japanese robot building competition, which, if I haven't made it clear enough, I want Aziz Ansari or someone to create non-con. There are a couple of classic examples of the uncanny valley and the perils thereof from relatively recent history. So one is the Polar Express, which had Tom Hanks playing a number of characters, both in voice and in appearance. And the characters looked so real, but also so weird. It was really eerie. And uh, especially for anyone who saw it at the time, the overwhelming reaction from everyone was, man, this is weird. Polar Express actually, I think, continues to do really well. And some people continue to watch it each year at Christmas. But uh, it's still, <laughs> I've, I've seen it in the last couple of years and it, it still retains that uncanny quality. You can never quite warm up to it uh, even after a few viewings. Another example is the Final Fantasy movie. So Final Fantasy was a video game that became a movie. I never really got into either, but apparently uh, there were so many people who were so into Final Fantasy, the video game, that they were really looking forward to the movie coming out sometime mid-2000s, I think. And the response, I think, was even more violent by critics and viewers alike to the Final Fantasy movie than towards... The Polar Express. One thing that's really weird in the clips I saw from Final Fantasy is where you see very realistic characters rendered on screen for you, mixed with voices you clearly recognize. Such voices were Alec Baldwin and Steve Buscemi. And when you see the mouth moving and the person gesticulating in a not quite human-like way, but where they also, in many other ways, look very human-like, mixed with voices that don't match the face, it is just really off-putting. And there are countless lampoons of the Final Fantasy movie all over the internet. I've linked to one particularly good YouTube video that describes all the bad things about the Final Fantasy movie. And it's hilarious and I think spot on with this notion of the uncanny valley and why we have a problem with these replicas of humans that aren't just human enough. I continually prod you, my dear listeners, to check out the show notes in every single show or to stick around for the all the way wet footnotes portion of the show. But for this concept, I think it's particularly helpful if you have a chance to click through because it is very much a visual experience, the Uncanny Valley. But I tried to think of an experience that could be purely auditory. And one example is if you've ever heard someone who moved from the UK 
to the United States or vice versa and lived there for a long time, preferably maybe they moved when they were, let's say, eight, nine, 10, early teens, and then lived in the other country for a while, they will emerge in their 20s with the most horrible accent you've ever heard in your life. It's like someone with a speech problem and nothing against people with speech problems. One of my favorite coffee places in DC is served primarily by deaf folks. And so I uh, love supporting that establishment. But this person who has no physical or cognitive or birth-related difficulties just by virtue of living in these two lands with different accents comes up with this chimera of an accent that is completely awful. There was a guy with this problem who was in the class behind me in Buds, and I'm pretty sure he made it (laughs) despite the language difficulties every time I heard him. And I I think I could speak for a number of other people, probably instructors alike. uh, I I bet they hated this guy just because he he definitely stood out (laughs) because as soon as you heard him speak, you were like, what, what, what? There was just something there you couldn't put your finger on. So the Uncanny Valley is an interesting concept, but how many of us are really going to become video game designers? Probably not many, but some of you are philosophers, not yet philosopher kings. You can work on that. Let me know how that goes for you. Others of you are dilettantes, but hopefully everyone in this audience is a leader or aspires to be one. Leaders can be uncanny. Maybe in a separate show, we'll detail the difference between managers and leaders. But I've come across a number of characters in management roles who are not human-like. They're bots. They are someone trying to be a leader, but they're a poor facsimile. They don't replicate humanness well. They don't know what it means to actually be a leader, and they don't believe the same things that the person they're trying to portray believes. It's not a genuine human. And what this leaves the people they're leading with is a sense that their manager, who aspires to be a leader, is disconnected from the real world, is disconnected from humankind, has no soul has no family, you wonder to yourself, is this person even capable of loving another human? And how on earth, even if they are, does anyone actually love them as a parent or a partner? That's a sad state of affairs because so many humans are in management positions. And yet for many of them, maybe even most of them, especially at those early years, people wonder to themselves, 
is this person even capable of some sort of personal relationship? I think that for many new leaders, and often, at least I've seen this probably more than any in women, because I feel like there's pressure from women on other women. And I'm not saying men don't have a role here, but there's this pressure to step up and be manly and be this very antiquated view of what a leader is. And that in a world dominated by men, in order to stand up to men or stand out from the crowd, that you need to act like a man or some sort of caricature of a man when actually a lot of the best female leaders that I've seen harness their true selves and are extremely authentic and not all of them, but many of them bring a feminine character to their leadership role that is very welcome. And that guys, including myself, having reported to several female leaders, respect. But guys don't think you're off the hook either. In reality, a lot of guys getting into new leadership positions, especially leadership positions where you're getting promoted from a crowd of entry-level people, many of them succumb to the same sorts of leadership mistakes. And more than anything, probably males from business schools going directly into some sort of management position probably are the worst offenders. They have many of the same characteristics as a new Naval Academy graduate in terms of being wet behind the ears and feeling like you know a lot. But I'm willing to bet that the average Naval Academy graduate, despite disagreements from many senior enlisted folks, is actually a bit more humble than the average business school graduate. Meanwhile, that Naval Academy graduate actually has a lot of context about the military industry they're headed into and additionally has years of leadership experience and leadership knowledge under the belt by the time they get to that new for real leadership position in the fleet. This new leader syndrome, this uncanny behavior where you don't behave like a normal human, where you don't relate to people on a personal level, where maybe you look at a checklist and say, okay, in every conversation, I'm going to ask how the person's kids are. Rather than actually caring how the person's kids are and knowing how to relate to people, that behavior a lot of times stems from a lack of confidence. It, it may just be that a person is simply impersonal and doesn't know how to relate to people. But a lot of times it, it really does stem from that person really having no idea what they're doing and being scared to death that someone is going to call them on it. Actually, there's a way of approaching this that is also genuine where someone in that position admits the things they don't know. And you'll be surprised how much that can be respected and not to mention how fast you'll get up to speed when you admit the things you don't know and ask the dumb questions. Michael, this is Judge Reinhold. I'm sorry, are, are you an actual judge? Oh, 
No, that's just a coincidence. I read somewhere Judge Judy made $25 million last year, and I'm like, hey, I never even heard of the guy. Gal, so you just, you're doing this because your name is Judge? Oh, no, that's not even part of it. He just has really good judgment. For anyone who wants to know more about the science of the Uncanny Valley, there's a link to a paper that's listed under the National Center for Biotechnology Information, NCBI, that is called Too Real for Comfort, Uncanny Responses to Computer-Generated Faces. And at least two of the root causes of the Uncanny Valley, why humans perceive these sort of imperfect replicas of humanness as uncanny are, again, we're talking about root causes. Two of them are threat avoidance and evolutionary aesthetics, meaning mate selection. And so if you think about those two root causes, as a leader, do you want the people around you, your stakeholders and the people who report to you to avoid you as a threat or to think that you are repulsive as a potential mate because of your behavior and your demeanor as this bot? I don't think so. So stop putting on armor, get some confidence, be a little more authentic, and you'll see results. Now, I picked on Coolio at the beginning of this episode for basically contributing very little to the musical gem that is Gangsta's Paradise, which a lot of people even now know, despite it being decades later. But I think Coolio really did add a number of things to that song, as well as Doug Rashid and, of course, LV with that chorus. Now, while I'm more of a music over words sort of guy, I don't listen to the lyrics as much. Um, and, I, and even when I was younger, I listened a lot less. But a lot of listeners did get a lot out of Coolio's lyrics in that song and really related to it in a way that they would never have been able to to the Stevie Wonder song. Coolio has a great quote that relates a lot to this concept of the Uncanny Valley and how you should avoid it at all costs. In a Seattle Times piece, he says, I keep it real all the time, every day. I don't really know how to fake it. I tried it. I tried playing the game, quote unquote, trying to be that guy who was always politically correct. For a while, I did okay. And then I realized that it wasn't really me. So I started completely, completely being myself. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been and now's that time you've been waiting for. We're going to get all the way wet. Footnote number one. Turns out that Stevie Wonder's pastime paradise was actually covered a lot. Stolen a lot by a lot of people. And Stevie Wonder seems like a nice guy. <laughs> but... He originally turned down Coolio's manager, producer, whoever approached him when they wanted to be able to sample his song. Of course, 
again, I was exaggerating with the grand theft comment about Coolio's gang in terms of what they did to that song. But they actually approached Stevie Wonder. He said no. Through a relation, I think that it was some sort of romantic interest between Stevie Wonder and someone's wife. She approached Stevie Wonder and Stevie Wonder said, sure, deal. I'll take 95% of publishing. Later on, once Gangsta's Paradise became a worldwide number one hit, Coolio was regretting that deal a little bit. Footnote number two. The Uncanny Valley was related to a number of paradoxes documented by the ancients. There's a question if you think about the Uncanny Valley, which is how much humanness do I need to take away from something before it becomes uncanny? Or how many human features, gesticulations, reactions do I need to add to a stylized character or figure or robot to make it uncanny? There's a paradox which is called the heap or Cerites, I think, if I'm pronouncing it right. Maybe, maybe Cerites, S-O-R-I-T-E-S. That and other paradoxes were documented by a man named Eubilides. Eubilides? It's in the show notes. The idea is one grain of sand is a grain, not a heap. But at some point, it becomes a heap. Meanwhile, if you start with a heap, you take away grains of sand. Each time I'm taking a grain from a heap, I'm still left with a heap. But at some point, you get to so few grains of sand where it doesn't pass the heap test. Now, I think that the conclusion by logisticians, philosophers, is that there's really sort of some language vagueness at play here. But I found some of these paradoxes when documented on Wikipedia to be pretty helpful in understanding them. So again, there in the show notes. Footnote number three, I highly recommend if you're interested in the spectrum between cool and strange to read On Being Awesome, A Unified Theory of How Not to Suck by Nick Riggle. Enough said. Footnote number four, I was a little hard on Judge Reinhold in this episode, probably more than I should have been. The guy has been in over 60 films, six zero, which I don't care if you're the most hated actor in the world, if you have no talent. If you're in 60 films, that speaks for itself. His father nicknamed him Judge when he was a baby because apparently his face was very stern, like a judge. Uh, that explained something that I've been wondering out ever since the 1980s. His first major film role was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which some of you, depending on age, will remember. There were a whole bunch of unknown actors in that. I, I didn't realize until now, preparing for this episode, how many of them were unknown. But Sean Penn, Phoebe Cates, Forrest Whitaker, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Nicolas Cage were all in that. By the way, I don't remember the Nicolas Cage character at all. Maybe I just never put it together that he was Nicolas Cage. but. I didn't realize that all of them were unknown at that time. <laughs> Reinhold said in, I'm quoting from Wikipedia, I thought my career would really take off after that role. Instead, Sean's career took off. By the way, Judge Reinhold was in an Arrested Development episode. He was also nominated for an Emmy 
for a role in Seinfeld, in which he played the close talker. That Emmy was actually for a two-part episode or a two-episode miniseries, however you want to describe it. They were called The Raincoats. And they include the part where Jerry and his girlfriend are caught making out at a theatrical showing of Schindler's List. That does it for this show. As Coolio would say, keep it real. Don't be a bot. No, 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 no. Kevin, me na do it. Spita.